How We Got Here, Part 8, A Bad Gig. Back when I was in my mid-twenties, I wanted to make my own radio show, but that seemed impossible. I hadn't even been able to get a job in public radio, and I had a lot of student debt and credit card debt from living in the Bay Area. So I was waiting tables and making radio pieces for free. And then a friend told me about Lyft. It was 2012 and the service was just starting in San Francisco. And I had this idea. What if I drove around, interviewed passengers, and made a little show? Then I could get money to pay the bills while I was gathering content. I finally have a shot at making my own thing. This is Driving with Strangers. I'm Sam Harnett. Yeah, I tried it. And every episode, I mix together responses to one question. Today, that question is, have you ever had an odd job? I drove around, gave passengers index cards with questions on them, and then recorded their stories. My probably most odd job, I worked as a silicon boob qualify tester. I once got paid to have pictures of my feet taken. I was dinosaurs at the mall. (laughs) The big dinosaur looked like Barney. I really believed in this show. I worked like crazy on it. I gathered hundreds of hours of tape. I even made business cards. But the show wasn't great. And I was spending so much time on it that I was actually losing money. By the end of 2013, I realized I had over 30 grand in credit card debt. I had fallen for the idea that I could beat the system all by myself. Okay, so I couldn't get a real radio job, but I could hustle my way to what I wanted. Instead, I ended up with a ton of debt and a podcast. But in the end, I was lucky. I was in trouble, but I had a support network of people with means. Friends and family lent me money. I'd gone to a four-year college, and racism and sexism weren't making it harder for me to get a job. After a few more years of contract work and waiting tables, I finally got a full-time position in radio with healthcare and even a 401k. Six years later, I was finally out of debt. As a reporter, I've interviewed so many people taking gigs like this who aren't so lucky. They don't have a support network. They don't have friends and family with means who can give them interest-free loans. A lot of people I interviewed have been pushed out of the mainstream economy because of who they are, the color of their skin, or their immigration status. And many see these gigs as a way out of a bad situation, a way to pay down debt and make rent. But often, it's not. As Erica Maghetto told us at the start of the series, it just traps you. Just got like sucked into it and then they keep cutting your pay and cutting your pay and cutting your pay and then the bills stack up and the credit card debt mounts and then you have to get that clutch and then you have to get that battery and you just you go from a paycheck to paycheck basis to a cash out to cash out basis. When gig companies like Uber, Lyft and others first started, they marketed themselves as something totally new and innovative and it caught on. Pundits started calling these gigs the future of work. But as I reported on them, it became clear that they were actually a continuation of everything we've talked about in this series, the shift of risk onto workers. In this episode, we're going to look at how these gigs represent a dark future of worker isolation and disempowerment. As I've been reporting on these companies, something has always rubbed me the wrong way. Why does everyone call them tech companies? Their business isn't building hardware or developing new software. Their revenue comes from gig workers doing services for people. I'm not the only one who thinks that calling them tech companies is misleading. The idea that this is new or innovative um, really is just a 
a way to detract from the reality that it is just old exploitation mediated through technology. Vina Dubal is a professor of law at UC Hastings who writes about the labor model behind these gig companies. She says appearing as something totally new helped these companies get around existing labor laws, which has been core to their business model. The innovation discourse around the gig companies fuels all of the investments that go into them. It fuels sort of consumer wonder about these companies and really the the fallacy or the false notion that these companies are new, that they are um, adding something new and like wonderful and beautiful and important to the American economy, um, when in fact they're just exacerbating and growing the informal labor market, creating um, more and more and more precarious workers, largely workers who are um, who are already on the margins of the workforce, people who are immigrants, people who um, don't have access to wage labor for various reasons. The people who do gig work for Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and others, they don't get employee benefits. They're barred from forming a union, they aren't guaranteed minimum wage or overtime, and they're also driving their own cars and using their own phones. All the risk in this situation has been shifted onto them. I've done a number of stories about Uber and Lyft, and their responses to this criticism have mostly stayed the same, that they're providing flexible work to people who need it. And that's true. But as Vina points out, these companies came to be at a time when so many people were desperate for any way to make income. It's worth noting that this work um, sort of came out of the ashes of the Great Recession. Um, And so, you know, after the Great Recession, unemployment numbers were really staggering. People were really economically desperate. And these companies started popping up left and right. And when they popped up, they seemed like a really good Deal because part of their business model is to start with high wages, lure people in um, until they're completely reliant on the work, and then to slowly take everything away from them. And so, what drew people into this work was the product of you know some forty years of moving from an economy in which people had full time jobs and um, and pensions and protections um, to an economy in which people, you know, didn't have, didn't have any of that. In 2014, Uber claimed that the median wage of a driver in New York City driving 40 hours a week was more than $90,000 a year. But a 2018 study by the Economic Policy Institute found that once you account for deducting fees and car expenses, the average hourly wage is closer to $12 an hour. Venus says gig work is yet another example of predatory inclusion. Instead of bad loans, it's precarious, unprotected work where you're all on your own. Uber runs ads to recruit drivers. And Vina says it's not a coincidence that these ads often feature people of color who face discrimination in the mainstream economy. Here's one ad with a black woman who's squeezing Uber rides into her busy life, but she looks empowered and happy doing it. These days, anyone can have a side hustle. And driving with Uber lets you go from earning to working. To chilling with the push of a button. Earning. <laughs> chilling. Earning. Thank you. Chilling. Vina says this whole idea that gigs were some kind of utopian future of work where people have maximum freedom to earn money whenever they want was a fantasy. 
She says people wanted to believe that technology could solve the problems that we've been talking about in this series, how there are now so few good options for workers. The company's marketing strategies really preyed on um, people's senses of isolation and lack of community. The work emerged during a moment um, of sort of national depression, national economic depression, but also um, social depression. And there was this sense that maybe this sort of techno um, uh, utopian optimistic sense that maybe somehow here technology will save us, both giving people jobs and by giving people community. And that's really, you know, it was seductive. Um, without historical context, it was hard to know that actually um, this was going to do the opposite. Part of the marketing of gig work is built on the whole American mythology of pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, you know, hustling. We're now constantly being told that hustling is a good thing, that we should try to optimize and get ahead. So we're all frantically trying to do more, faster, all by ourselves. I did a story on this two years ago, and there's a whole cottage industry of people who are promoting the hustle. I want to talk to you today about your personal freedom. We're going to give this a different word here in a second, but for right now, I was talking to a friend last night, a guy that works closely with me. I greatly respect this guy. And he he asked me a question. He's like, Grant, what would happen if you got wiped out completely? Like you had nothing left. I'm like, dude, if they took all my checking, all my savings, my business collapsed, I'd just crank up again because I got the hustle muscle. And he's like, what? I said, I got the hustle muscle. You know what I'm saying? This is hustle muscle right here, baby. Hustle muscle. It's not just in your biceps or your, or your whatever. These are called the pecs or the triceps, okay? The hustle muscle is in the heart, dude. See, you the truth is, no matter how hard you hustle, sometimes you just can't get ahead. And that was true for a lot of people even before the pandemic. Now, can you imagine telling all the workers you heard from in this series that what they really needed to do to make everything better was to just flex their hustle muscle? Well, even during the pandemic, the mythology of this hustling is still very much alive and well. So how can you make extra cash while living in isolation? The options are limitless. Teachers, for example, can make good money working as tutors online. Lawyers could be hiring. You could even be part of a virtual mock trial as a juror. The pay, as much as 60 bucks an hour. At the same time, people are being told to hustle and take on more gigs. Those doing gig work still don't have basic protections, even as consumers are turning to them more and more for essential services. Vanessa Bain delivers groceries for Instacart. She was so fed up, she helped organize a strike at the beginning of the pandemic. Right now, there is a heightened sense of awareness, thankfully, that our labor is essential, but it's still not paying like it's essential, and it's still not protecting us like it's essential. While workers are struggling, some gig companies have been raking in the cash, especially the ones that do delivery. Customers who don't want to expose themselves to the virus keep ordering and ordering. Instacart alone says it has added hundreds of thousands of gig workers. People desperate for income during this economic crisis keep signing up to do the work. Again, here's Vina. It is such an irony in some ways that the very people that regulators and um, and really consumers have turned a blind eye to over the past uh, you know near decade are the people that we are most reliant on 
right now. Um, the people that are putting their lives at risk to, um, to get us you know, food, to get us the things we need for our families, to do the work that we are unwilling or unable to do for ourselves. The pandemic exposed the ways that our economic system has always made life precarious for so many people. But it didn't have to be this way. It was not inevitable. It's been the product of this long history of worker disempowerment and isolation. If we change course, maybe the future of work wouldn't look like the unprotected, precarious, disempowered gigs of the past. Maybe it could actually be different. I can imagine a world in which you had, um, you know, a, an army of Instacart shoppers who were employees who got really good benefits, who really felt dignity and value, who, in, you know, were proud of their work, who were paid well for their work. Next time on our final episode, we're going to look at where we go from here. And the answer isn't to try and turn back the clock to the 1940s and 50s. How We Got Here is made by KQED's Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. It's time for our last little sound break. And if you missed these, we've been doing them in the middle and at the end of the episodes. In this last sound break, we had this idea. What could you pay attention to if you re-listen to this series? You already know the story pretty much, but we try to put a bunch of stuff in this show that touch on some other ideas, ideas that are tangential to the main thesis. So here are some potential things you could think about if you re-listen to part of the series. First, the presidents. We had a lot of presidents in here. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. For in your time, we have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward to the great society. From the time I came to Congress 23 years ago, I have recognized that the hundreds of thousands of fine Americans in the mail service, the post office department, are underpaid, and they have other legitimate grievances. It's interesting to just listen to their rhetoric, their way of speaking, the little turns of phrases that they decide to use. What does it say about that period or the ideology? Because really, these presidents, they're just a reflection of the power dynamics at play. There is only one point on which all advisors have agreed. We must whip inflation right now. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. I would like to have a crusade today, and I would like to lead that crusade with your help, and it would be one to take government off the backs of the great people of this country. Today, after all the votes have been tallied, health insurance reform becomes law in the United States of America. Second, how are we complicit in the system? Part of the appeal of shareholder capitalism is that it can lead to lower prices for consumers. By buying cheap goods made by exploited workers, we're perpetuating the whole system. In what other ways have our actions been contributing to shareholder capitalism? In what ways are those actions in your life avoidable or not?
Lord, I'm so tired. How long can this go on? Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to slip down. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to slip down. And finally, we've mainly been focusing on the economic effects on individuals in this series. But as you might have noticed in the sound breaks, this society has made a lot of people really lonely and isolated. Atomized, as Hannah Arendt would say. So many people want to feel less alone. They're searching for community. Uh, what we try to do is build community here. But we also need to look at communities. Community. Community. Community work. Shock the community. We see that reflected here in our community garden program. The mobile food vendor community. Fight the crime within your community. They start going out to the community. Community gatherings. Making the community safer as a whole. In the local community. Make community every day. We want to help one billion people join meaningful communities. You could re-listen to this whole series with that in mind as the central problem, the isolation and loneliness. And a couple extra dollars an hour or better benefits, that could help. But solving this problem in America will require much more than that.